first of all, uh, a little bit of an apology or at least explanation. This is not my primary area of, of research. Uh, Dr. Chiporo is far more expert on the notion of reconciliation and has done academic research on it. I actually sort of do it on the other side. I started my interest in South Africa. Uh, my first book was on Soviet ties to African revolutionary movements and the relationship between uh, what we called national liberation movements in the Soviet Union and how they were supported by the US, the Soviet Union, and how they went back and forth. Uh, that did allow me to spend some critical time in South Africa during the ending of apartheid, which is what we're going to be talking about. In particular, between 1986, when my wife and I, and a lovely wife is here with us tonight, thank you. I thought I'd at least have one in the audience. Um, but we were first there in 1986 when I was doing my dissertation research. And I came back for two summer fellowships after that. And then finally, a longer Fulbright experience to the extent that I lived just over a year in South Africa between 86 and 91, which was the last time I spent extensive time there. Uh, during that time, I was fortunate to get a little bit involved. I did write one of the articles I did was on the possibilities of international role on the peacemaking process in South Africa. If you know anything about me, this is a bit weird, but myself and the head of the South African Communist Party in the region, uh, we wrote a piece on looking at opportunities for uh, international role in the peace settlement process. Uh, I did bring a little bit of show and tell the, what we're really going to be talking about is the Truth Commission there. And the Truth Commission was led by a pretty famous individual by the name of Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Uh, Desmond Tutu was the Anglican Archbishop for South Africa, the principal leader during the period where Mandela was in jail, primarily at Robben Island uh, off the Cape Town coast. Uh, Archbishop Tutu led this political process on the opposition side. And the picture I brought off my wall, I just thought of today, is that's Archbishop Tutu. And this man next to him with a red beard and red hair may look unfamiliar, but that's me 30 years ago, um, standing next to him. So what happened in South Africa in the period from about 1986 to 91 is the period in which apartheid was winding down, and they came up with the concept that was at that point relatively novel for countries of a truth and reconciliation process, which was something relatively new. In some respects, it was based on the more formal judicial process at Nuremberg, which occurred after World War II, but in many respects, it was based more on local culture. Before I explain the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, I need to say a little bit about apartheid because most people don't know anymore what it was really like. Um, for us, it was very strange. Uh, first of all, South Africa first became a colony in the 1600s. Um, formally in 1652, it became a Dutch colony. Then the British took it over in 1910, and then it became independent. Um, in or the British took it over in 1910, then independence shortly followed. But it wasn't until 1948 that the 
what's called the Afrikaner people took over. The Afrikaners are descendants of the Dutch, so they're the, sort of the colonialists in South Africa. South Africa, ironically, is a very racially diverse place. Um, and when they took over in 1948, they created a system they called apartheid. Apartheid is literally the Afrikaans word for segregation or separation. Uh, what, it, what they tried to do was two forms of apartheid. One was called petite or, or small apartheid, which was not small on its scale, but was small in the separation between them. So when we lived in a city in South Africa, whether it was Johannesburg or uh, we spent a lot of time in Grahamstown, there was a white area, then there was a black area, and then there was a colored area, and each of them had their own facilities, their own church, their own schools. Uh, when we first arrived, they had just gotten rid of separate facilities for restrooms, but there were still like water fountains marked black and white um, in some buildings and some facilities. That was petty apartheid, where you couldn't live in the same neighborhood. It was a formal system of separation, segregation, uh, and it was not separate but equal, it was separate and unequal, very much so. I mean, you could tell when you passed out of the white area into the black area, into the colored area, each of them had separate practices or culture. I remember when we first arrived for our Fulbright year in, South, in Grahamstown, we attended the white church for a week or two, and they were talking about issues that we talk about here, the Latin mass, how important it was, et cetera. They weren't talking about the racial divide. We then went to the black church. They were speaking uh, primarily Kosa. We didn't understand much of what was going on, and we ended up at the colored church, was the one that sort of worked for us. But again, three Catholic churches in one city, each of them associated with one of the three different racial groups. Grand apartheid, which is what more people think of more when they hear apartheid, is what they tried to do is enforce segregation by creating separate countries for the what are called the Bantu peoples. Those are the ones who are not of mixed race, not white, not, um, not colored, and have different ethnic communities. They actually created 10 of these. Four of them became legally, according to the South Africans, separate countries. Uh, the other six never made it to that process, but that was the end goal. Doesn't sound so bad in theory, except for the fact that they took about 13% of the land and assigned it to 85% of the people. The land they took was very careful. The, when you look at what were called homelands, these uh, uh, Bantu stans where the Bantu people would live, they were separated dots. That was to make sure they didn't include any of the diamond mines or the gold mines in the Bantu stands, that they didn't get any of the wealthy territory, and even nice farmland was excluded. So the whites, which were about 15% of the population, got most of the land and all of the really good land. So racial injustice was something quite severe. It's, it's not comparable to the problems we have here. It's very similar in some respects to our early experiences with Native American Indian reservations. In fact, some of the literature on Bantu stands was related in it. So in essence, they're dealing with a 300-year-ish um, history of racial injustice that was getting much worse in the last 40 or 50 years. Laws were getting worse, persecution was getting worse, the military violence between 
the black political organizations and the white government was getting very brutal, thousands of casualties, hundreds on a regular basis uh, in the conflict. So that's what they were trying to overcome. The commission was actually created shortly after the transitional government was put in place. It had four primary goals. And the first was national unity and reconciliation. So this is interesting in that you have a commission whose job it is to address past racial crimes, but its primary purpose is a national sort of social one rather than individual justice one. Now justice is in the name and I'll get to that, but its second goal was the granting of amnesty to perpetrators. So they wanted people who had been involved in the racial persecution, who had beat up people, who had killed people, to come confess, to tell them what their crimes were, to explain it, and to publicly ask forgiveness. Um, so that was the second goal of it. The third was the restoration of dignity for the victims. They wanted the victims to feel empowered, the victims to feel understood by their perpetrators coming forward and confessing the crime. And the fourth goal was recommendations for future justice. In other words, create a system that continues to address these. So Tutu and uh, 16 others were put in charge. I think five or six of them were actually ministers. So the very notion of sort of religious reconciliation with confession, um, amends being made is very much a sacramental notion as the South Africans uh, perceived it and constructed this. Uh, in fact, many refer to that. The scope of it was to deal with violations that had occurred after 1960, but before 1994. And in particular, <coughs> it was to focus on, by the way, I did get COVID tested yesterday. I do have a cold. I will wear a mask when I'm not speaking. Um, just just to put that out there. It dealt with gross violations, which included abductions, killings, and torture were the primary things that it was supposed to be focused on. And again, it's official. It officially said, we will deal with these violations, whether they occurred by the government, by the opposition organizations, or by random individuals not affiliated with either. So this is a very big project in terms of scope. Um, it again seems odd that it's focused on the community. There is a Kosa and Zulu word Ubuntu, which is used in a number of uh, Southern African peoples. Ubuntu basically means humanness or a notion of humanness that is invested in the community. And there's a quote from Tutu where he says, Ubuntu means I am human because I acknowledge you as human. And if I erode your humanity, I am simultaneously eroding my humanity. It's this notion that I can't have individual human dignity while depriving someone else of it. So it's very helpful that this is part of the culture in which the majority population is living that gives, I would argue, some of the voice to this. So again, 80 some percent of the population is Bantu, five to seven percent. The Bantu population is subdivided into various ethnic categories. Kosa, Zulu are the two biggest groups, um, but there's Venda, Siskai, Transkai, et cetera. 
and then there's the white and the colored population. In total, the process, there were 19,050 victims who came forward to testify. Another 2,975 who in the process were identified and started either shared their stories or someone brought up their names and spoke on their behalf. There were also 7,000 individuals who self-identified as perpetrators, that they had been involved in some sort of racial crime, primarily killings, torture, or uh, abductions. And in order to receive amnesty, what was entailed is that they were supposed to, I've got about five more minutes. Oh, can, do you have um, plenty of time. What they were supposed to do is come forward, tell their story, confess what they had done, again, confess, reconciliation, and in exchange, they would be granted amnesty if they felt that it was severe or that it was sincere. And in exchange for this, the victims could then be granted a form of compensation by the commission itself. So the victims were, the perpetrators were supposed to do things, but it was supposed to begin with confession, begin with any acts they had, they were routinely asked, have you done anything since then to try and make up for this? What do you plan to do in your life to try and make up for this? So it's a really kind of odd mix from a Western perspective between what we would think is sacramental and confers in the confessional and what is public and is separate and judicial here in the United States. So it's that sort of mingling that I think makes it really unique as compared to Nuremberg, which was a very fairly formal trial system. So what are the results of this? Um, the results are very mixed. I'll give you my opinion at the end. Um, a lot of families thought that there was relatively little reconciliation that occurred, that the bridge between the black community and white community, um, and uh, the colored community often gets put aside in all of this, um, was not really mended, that they didn't fully build a bridge in it but their argument is that racial animosity did not end. But in many ways, I think their expectations of racial justice were unrealistic, that it could come so quickly. Some of them were looking for immediate, very significant economic recompense. What they were receiving, the maximum reset amount given by the commission was 3,500 US dollars for six years, which is a total of $21,000 which you could actually buy a house in South Africa for that amount of money, so it was significant, but it's not necessarily life-changing um, that the commission is awarded. Some very prominent perpetrators came forward. Um, F.W. de Klerk, the last president of white South Africa, came forward. He gave his testimony. He confessed. He offered an apology. He asked for forgiveness. It went very well. Uh, de Klerk actually was the co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1993 with um, the first black president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela. They were co-awarded the prize together. Uh, conversely, his predecessor, P.W. Bota, refused to appear, was sent multiple summons and just ignored the commission. And many people were angry about things like that, that he wouldn't talk about what had happened under him. Uh, there had also been a lot of destruction of documents between about 1990 when the white government began to realize this was ending and the 
new government under Mandela, the ANC, African National Government, got fully in control. A number of victims also complained that they felt deprived of the right to a real trial because, for example, a very famous case of a African leader, a man by the name of Stephen Biko, his family filed a complaint saying, look, they killed our father, our uncle, our dad, and all they had to do was make a public apology, and you know there would be some trials that might follow on this. But that was one of the failings, is those that did confess thing and were not granted amnesty. So there were 7,000 people who came forward and asked for amnesty of 7,100 someone. Only about 1,200 were actually granted amnesty. The others were supposed to eventually get trials. They didn't get them. So sometimes people who got, who were never brought to trial and got amnesty, those victims were angry, but the ones who never came forward or um, were granted amnesty could also be upset. Uh, the colored population also felt rather betrayed by this because there are particular problems which are different. Uh, the colored community was always a mishmash of communities. There was um, some South Asians who were brought there, particularly in the Natal regions, Indian and Pakistani, we'd say today, who serviced the agricultural industry in the area. There was an indigenous people, um, Americans tend to call them Bushmen, but that's considered a derogatory term. Khoi and San are the, their actual names. Uh, smaller people, slighter, lighter skinned than the Bantu peoples. Um, and then everyone of mixed heritage got uh, put into this. Others though found it very cathartic and that's where I sort of agree with them. There was a healing for many of the minority population, the blacks and the coloreds, who looked at the white perpetrators, particularly, who would come forward and tell the story, saying, look, my other people I know who are white didn't believe this was going on, denied this was going on, ignored the fact that this was going on. So these were publicly broadcast, many of them live, all of them recorded. So there was a certain healing that allowed, it was hurt, it was painful, but it was somewhat cathartic to live through this for many black and colored South Africans to be part of the experience, to watch it unfold on TV. My own sense is that despite the messiness of the process, the inadequacy of trying to make up for 300 years of racial injustice, and not solving the racial injustice entirely. Racism stays with us even though we, we can get better, we can improve as individuals. It's still there. But my view is because it was so public, because it was so pronounced, because it was so talked about, it did help them as a country. And I would make a comparison with another country I studied just to the north of them is a country that was originally known as Rhodesia and now called Zimbabwe. There, when the whites were overthrown, they almost all fled the country. In some ways, that you might think that good for the black population, but they took with them the ability to run a lot of the infrastructure, the farming skills, the organizational capacity to run the sewage systems. You know, all of these things collapsed overnight. 
They did drastic policies where they divided up demand and immediately turned it over into small, largely unproductive, unprepared land territories where South Africans' transition has been smaller, it's been gentler, more of the white population has stayed, and they've really, again, racial injustice is not gone, it's not disappeared, racial attitudes are not gone, but interracial marriage is common, Um, The setting has changed dramatically, the feel has changed, there's still high crime levels, but I think they've had economic success partly because the way they did this, partly because the way they proceeded. So my own take is courageous experiment, far from perfect, but in really some ways miraculous, that they got through this period without a massive killing afterwards. There were no killing fields when apartheid ended, and that alone, I think, is miraculous. So let me end there, and I'll shift over to Ricardo, and then we're doing questions after and comments. Okay, please. Thank you, Dr. Kenton, for sharing with us such experience. Well, the experience that I'm about to share uh, is based in my own participation in the Colombian armed conflict as a citizen, you could say like a witness of what was growing up while the violence was going around my home, my my country. Um, And yes, I I actually belong, I I took part of the Colombian army, just did my military service, a one-year thing that led me not to decide to continue with, with my, my service to, within the army, but rather to change my perspective. And long story short, I ended up in, in social work. So, which was, which is to me like a different kind of service. So, the perspective that I am offering here comes both from my position as a Colombian and also, I wouldn't say diametrically, <laughs> a, a totally different uh, contrast from Dr. Kempton's approach, but more into the, um, the impacts of what came to be a transitional justice system or a transitional justice process for uh, people in Colombia. This was part of my recent, my recent um, doctoral research, which was the, the title, the actual title of it was, We Did So Many Things Wrong an approach to truth-seeking and the sense of responsibility in the confessions of former low-ranking members of the paramilitary in Colombia. So uh, I will explain it later in in regards to the context in Colombia, but the paramilitary forces in Colombia are illegal and they are under a condition of working outside the law, doing the dirty work of the government. That's pretty much like they are described. They do what the army as an official body cannot execute, cannot uh, do, because, well, the army as an official body, once again, is under the scope of human rights commissions and and justice commissions. So the paramilitary are considered to do these things that fall outside of the capacity of the army. And the consequences of of it have been rather devastating for victims and for the country as a whole. Now, something else that I would like to to mention about the title of my research, we did so many things wrong. This is the translation from the original in Spanish, Uh, hicimos muchas cosas mal. But what called my attention when I listened to this expression and I got it from a legal confession from a former perpetrator, 
was the order of, of the words. We did so many things wrong in contrast with an ethical position of acknowledging we did so many wrong things. So that brought to me a sense of, okay, what is the type of responsibility that you are actually assuming in, in, when, when you are doing your confession in a legal scenario? So pretty quick, what I'm proposed, what, the order of the presentation that I proposed here, like what was the question that animated my research, uh, a bit of a context uh, of the armed conflict and the paramilitary violence in Colombia. My key findings in regards to my research question and future directions for approaching the study on perpetrators and for social work practice in particular, because well, that's my field. So the question that animated my research was, how do lower ranking former perpetrators of paramilitary violence in Colombia contribute with their confessions to the legal truth-seeking process of transitional justice? Lower ranking, one of, the, one of my findings, findings while looking at literature on perpetrators of mass atrocities and human rights abuses is that uh, the spotlight is usually on, on the higher ranking members, on those intellectual authors of violence, of those who gave the order to execute violence, but there is not that much about people who actually executed the violence because they were the ones who received the order. Those who actually perpetrated the violence, there is not that much in the literature for, except for a few cases, and especially in social work, if you are not familiar with the social, with the field of social work, social workers are widely involved in the provision of services for the reparation of victims, for assistance of people in need. They are heavily involved in providing with services for perpetrators of mass atrocities to reintegrate into society, the so-called social reintegration, but social workers do not sit down to write about it. So looking into this gap, I aim to make a sort of a contribution from the social work field to the study and the understanding of perpetrators. That's why my research question focused on these lower ranking, um, lower ranking perpetrators of violence, of paramilitary violence. Just to provide a bit of a geographical, the, the geography of what I am talking about, uh, I am rather surprised by the number of college students who ask me where in Europe or in Asia Colombia is located. <laughs> Yeah, and we're still talking about college students, college educated people, so no, actually Colombia, well, South America. And the case study, or the case that I focus on was in this southern region of Colombia that is known as Putumayo. The reason why I focus in this area is because it is rather away from the central government. Colombia, different to the United States, has a centralist model of government which means we do not have separated states. All decisions, state decisions and domestic decisions are taken from the central government in the actual center of the country. And uh, this area, because it is located in the border with both Ecuador and Peru, is rather away from this center of economic and political power. Because of this also, the Confederacy of Paramilitary Forces in Colombia works mostly in the center of the country and the northern of the country because it is it, it provides uh, better soil for agricultural purposes and most of the economic elites are concentrated in this part. So paramilitary forces focus here, but still they were interested in grabbing some control, in, in acquiring some control over the south of Colombia because this is the area that actually uh, provides better conditions for growing 
the plant of coca, which takes part in the in the production of cocaine, the illegal substance. So by grabbing control of this area, they were making sure that they were gaining control and they were going to get a profit of this substance. Now, um, and a side note related to cultural competence, Colombia is known for its big production of the plant, the coca plant, but Colombia is not a consumer country. So that distinction is quite important when looking into matters of drug trafficking. Also to give you an idea then of the uh, type of commanders or the type of people that I approach to, this, uh, this chart presents like the organization of a typical paramilitary block in Colombia. They have national commanders and they these commanders are in charge of military tasks, political tasks, financial tasks. Then they have sort of regional commanders and then they have block commanders. And these are the ones that I was able to approach to. The other ones that actually execute the orders to commit violence are this one, patrolmen and urban operatives, in other words, the foot soldiers. But because of safety reasons, I was not allowed to approach them. Safety for them because, well, they're also giving confessions and these uh, foot soldiers, they do not have like the sort of uh, material protection that uh, other commanders do have. So it was in order to protect them, but also in order to protect me because me and my family, because tracing these foot soldiers once they are in the civility is not that easy. And if there were going to be any sort of retaliation, well, nothing was going to be in place to protect me and my family. So uh, I was recommended, I followed the recommendation to work with those in this level of the commanding structure. Now, some context about the armed conflict and the paramilitary violence in Colombia. Colombia has been in an internal conflict for more than 70 years, and it has involved the influence of armed communist factions, rebel factions, the same as it has involved the um, participation of local structures of far-right um, paramilitary forces. At some point in history, they did have some uh, legal support. They were sponsored and approved by the government. But the thing is that the type of violence that they perpetrated, as some of these pictures somehow show, uh, made the government rather step away to retire their support from these uh, paramilitary forces. But rather than actually eliminating the paramilitary forces that were in place, they just let them like a loose wheel. And from there, these paramilitary forces, what they did was to do activities in order to gain more control, in order to gain more military power. And well, they continued to execute violence across the country on behalf of confronting the communist forces, the rebel armed communist forces, but well, also having some influence on, is it back? Yes. Not yet? Nothing yet? Okay. Also having some influence in the, in the exploitation of resources in, in the regions of the country. There is lots to say about what the paramilitary did in, in Colombia, uh, but I think that it is better described by the words of victims. Uh, there were very many places where the paramilitaries actually settled down for spaces of 10, 15, 20 years, 
because the lack of of the presence of government and military forces, they took the role of becoming the law in many places. And the adjectives used by victims to describe them is that they were bloodthirsty, corrupted, furious, cannibals, evil, and terrifying. Just to give you an idea of like what is the sort of impression that these victims were gaining from the presence of these perpetrators of mass atrocities. But more than illustrating the pain and the suffering, I would also like to, to show here a little bit of the expressions of agency by the victims, because most of the times when we think about violence, political violence, we, we have the idea of the victim who is defenseless, who is helpless, and who just stays there waiting to be attacked somehow. But actually, victims are quite active in putting in place mechanisms, mechanisms for remembering their death, for uh, commemorating those important uh, events that have led to their victimization, but also to make claims for justice and for reparation for what happened to them. In 2005, these paramilitary forces actually demobilized. As I was mentioning, they, they had before the official support from, from the government, but this support still continued like underground. There were still political leaders, local political leaders who were benefiting, who were profiting from the presence of the paramilitary, whether because they were having financial ties or just because they actually served as, as a measure to control votes and they took advantage of it. So these ties, one of the criticisms against the demobilization of the paramilitary in between 2005, 2006 is that the military structure was dismantled or, or disbanded, excuse me, but the financial and the economic structures remain in place. And that has, led, that has led to the emergence of new expressions of paramilitary violence. It is not anymore this big paramilitary confederacy that, that used to be known as uh, United Self-Defense Self Forces of Colombia, but now paramilitary violence is rather like disseminated in, in smaller cells. So what I did for my research was to look into the to look into video recordings of four low-ranking paramilitary commanders to examine and to interpret the confessions that they were doing and to extract from there some ideas of how they were elaborating some sense of responsibility. And after doing this, I had the opportunity to sit down and actually interview these paramilitary commanders, to, to, to sit down and to have a conversation with these perpetrators of mass atrocities. And this contrast between what they had confessed in the legal scenario, because the model in Colombia uh, didn't place that much emphasis on reconciliation, as it put it, on truth in exchange for a top sentence of eight years in jail. So after following these confessions and these confessional narratives and having these interviews, these are the conclusions that I came up with. The first one, that con confessions, in, in spite that the main voice is from, comes from the perpetrator, the perpetrator is the one that comes up with the information about how violence was perpetrated, confessions still have an, a shared authorship character. What I mean with this is that, once again, the confession, the perpetrator provides the information, but he provides the information depending on the type of questions that he is being asked. 
So if the, if the prosecutor comes up with a particular question about this topic, the confession is going to focus on that topic and not on another. And with these characteristics, many of the perpetrators of violence in Colombia come rather from rural origins, so they didn't have like the same understanding that the prosecutor had to understand the type of violence that they were executing, that they had executed in the past. So for example, one of the, one of the biggest things that they came to realize, the perpetrators, or that they were confused about instead, is when they were asked about gender violence. They were asked about what type of violence did you do based on gender? And that's honestly a concept that not even many college people understand, let alone these people from rural origins who never had more than two or three years of elementary, uh, elementary education. So they were not able to see violence against women as something violent if it did not involve physical sexual assault, but public humiliation, bringing women naked into the streets when they were surprised uh, committing adultery or uh, like denouncing them publicly when, when they were surprised gossiping in the streets and forcing them to, to wash clothes and some other force of sexual slavery these perpetrators did not see that as violent because that was actually part of their everyday, the everyday of the paramilitary, not the everyday of the victims, but the everyday of the paramilitary. And they did not see that as violent. They only saw violence wherever there was like sexual assault. And another point to illustrate this, they were asked at some point uh, what harms they did to the environment. And as you can see in this excerpt that I brought from the, from the confession, to the environment, Madam Prosecutor, I don't think that I'm following what you mean. Well, what animal, what harms did you do to animals, to rivers? Well, I don't remember how, honestly, Madam Prosecutor, I don't know how one harms the environment. I don't really get that. While moving or patrolling, were you shooting animals or hurting the environment? And the perpetrator answers, oh, no, 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 Madam Prosecutor, people in the country used to give us hands. They gave us hands because they feared us. Once again, this is just like to illustrate what logic the prosecutor was bringing their questions from, her questions from, because he was a female prosecutor, and what logic were the perpetrators answering from. So what we find in the courtroom was the convergence of three different logics. The prosecutor, from a legalistic perspective, from a legalistic logic, where the prosecutor is interested in the rule of law. And the prosecutor comes with all her knowledge or his knowledge and makes these questions that for people who are not enlightened in law, who are not educated in law, result complicated. The logic of ex-combatants, and they answer from what they used to do, which was having violent power, grabbing power by the force. But also, victims are given the opportunity to make questions, and the victims, the, the questions that they bring are formulated from the logic of their suffering, the, the, the very experience of suffering. And in this sense, they come with questions related to three aspects. What were the last minutes of my husband or my son or my girl before she was killed? What were the very last moments? How she was killed, the second component. And the third one, who else was involved? And with that, my second key finding in these contributions to truth lower-ranking perpetrators claim a higher moral ground to preserve their reputation. 
in contrast with higher, uh, higher ranking perpetrators, the type of perpetrators that Dr. Kempton was talking about that refused to participate in the, in the truth-seeking process, higher ranking perpetrators exculpate themselves. They say, no, I did nothing because I never was on the ground perpetrating the violence. Lower ranking perpetrators cannot say that because they were on the ground, so somehow they either executed the violence or they were instrumental to the execution of the violence because they gave a command to somewhere in a lower rank. But still, they show or, or they resort to certain rationales and justifications to say, I was actually following orders like any other person, and this like any other is like an effort to make violent, abnormal things normal. And we believe too much in these people. That was the previous title that I had given to my, to my dissertation. Remember that one of the questions that victims bring is whom else took part in this event? And by, by that whom else, or by these people in this, in this expression, they meant what other member of the community ratted out my husband or uh, accused my son of being of the opposite side? Because those were the strategies that people found to survive. In the middle of daily of, of the execution of daily violence, they found out that by cooperating with the paramilitaries, even if they provided true information or false information, uh, they, they were going to survive and probably to, to have access to some privileges. Who knows? So this question about uh, who else took part in, in, in the perpetration of this crime, um, they, they were asking about other members in the community. And the paramilitary took advantage of these sort of questions to say, you know what, the violence that we committed was because you asked us, asked us to commit that violence. We killed this person because you asked us to kill this person, not because we wanted. And with that comes my third key finding here. If I find the appropriate slide before I run out of time. Perpetrators still exercise their, farmer, their former power in the courtroom. The justice process and the courtroom is expected to be like an empowering moment for victims. And actually giving victims the opportunity to make their own questions is, is expected to, to become like a sort of repair, repairing moment, some, some sort of uh, restoration of the dignity that was grabbed away from them by force and by violence. But these sort of responses that the paramilitary bring end up placing the, their responsibility back on victims themselves. So in the end, the courtroom is unable to delegitimize this violent paramilitary ideology. And for that purpose, if you allow me two more minutes beyond the, the time that I had, uh, I would like to, to share the contrast between these two excerpts. This one, the first one in the slide, is from uh, two, 2010 during a confession. This perpetrator says, I want to make something clear, Madam Prosecutor, that these incursions, these violent in op operatives that we made in were these violent operatives were made in response to the calls made by the mayors of all those towns. Oh, sorry. They had requested us to come and to work right where they were. Seven years later in 2017, when I come to interview this same perpetrator, when I come to the region, Lower Puctumayo, people know me better than the mayor himself. People knew us and they either loved us or saw us as a necessary evil. But many have even thanked me for the time that I was there. 
for many of them, we were rather a problem, of course. I mean, how they could love us if we killed someone from their family. But it was a very safe town. You could walk around without getting in trouble. Really, we were a necessary evil. So the purpose of justice, the purpose of reparation, and the purpose of social repair for the victims and for the Colombian society itself is not achieved. And this is actually like, this is actually a deficiency from the legal model of justice that was chosen in this uh, peace building process in Colombia. So quite short, fewer directions. In the first, the, in first place, I strongly suggest if you are social workers interested in like in international affairs or this sort of, of this type of violence, or if you are in other fields like political viol like political science, excuse me, um, right and sleep there, like political science, pay attention to lower perpetrators because higher ranking perpetrators, yes, they give us an understanding of the higher structures that um, that organize violence but lower ranking perpetrators allow us to get a better idea of how the execution of violence looks like in the everyday. And that everyday is the one that harms people. And for social work practice and research, I actually bring this, this direction or this challenge from another author who happened to be um, the examiner of my dissertation, Brandon Humber, a social psychologist. And he says that we need to evaluate the aftermath of transitional justice, the aftermath, like what are the effects of these uh, peace building processes like the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, or this uh, justice and peace law as it is known the process in Colombia. We need to learn about the aftermath. And social workers in particular have like a, a very good position on that to, to answer to that challenge because social workers, as I mentioned at the very beginning, are the ones in place providing the services, assisting former perpetrators, helping former perpetrators and victims with um, efforts for reconciliation and for social reintegration. So once again, this is a field that might be appealing for social work uh, research and purposes.